Hey, welcome back to another episode of Shop Talk. Uh, joined this week, as always, with Jonathan. Jonathan, how you doing? Hello, good evening. <laughs> Having fun? Having fun. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> pretty good week this week. Got a few rides in, did some, uh, celebrated the wife's birthday, got to go out and have a little fun with the friend, family and friends. And uh, how about your week? Anything exciting? Well, I uh, I joined you guys on the uh, the Thursday night oh, that's mountain right. bike ride on Thursdays. Yeah, I didn't really get to sh- uh, talk with you after that too much. Did yeah. you have fun? It was okay. Um, it was way overgrown. Crazy, right? I yeah. So um, I I haven't gone on on the the exact route that you guys go. Yeah. You know, now that you guys go whatever above that street thing. Um, but man, so I. Everything was kind of new to me in that sense, and and everything was overgrown. So you're like you're riding literally through the weeds. Yeah, yeah. So and we cu- we cut off uh, the worst part mm. on Sky Canyon. Got it. They're like at the top end. The, the bushes are Got hitting it. you in the face, and you literally can't see anything. Yeah. It's yeah. bad. At least on the cross, they've uh, the guys have weed eated and have abated some of it yeah. quite a bit but so. being on the e-bike though it was that was nice yeah that was nice you know so i did uh um, certainly i was not tired <laughs> right you know um so if i if i would have knew the the trail better i i might have had more fun a little more fun yeah yeah you don't think you miss being on a full suspension that it that trail's not really that rough though right uh no i mean there's some full suspension parts that could have happened yeah you know um and yeah i mean just uh navigating the e-bike and figuring out where to push and things like that, you can feel the weight. You can, you know. Right. So. And then you got all you know. the different levels. Did you did you use turbo at all or did you just keep it in sport? And... Uh, EMTB. Okay. Yeah. And that's when it gives you the constant. It's the constant, yeah. yeah. So no matter right. how you're pedaling, you right, sort of right. get the same assist up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, so, uh, done that right a couple of times when I was testing or mm-hmm. looking at the bike. Mm-hmm. It does make it fun, yeah. <laughs> especially yeah. especially mm-hmm. on the climbs. I think yeah. you have a little more left at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so that was cool. Yeah, but it was a good turnout. We had nine guys out riding, and so it was it was great for the weather to finally mm-hmm. be turning and and having a good ride again. Um, so yeah, anything else exciting this week? No, really not exciting. I was supposed to go ride today. I told myself I'd go ride with my daughter, and I just ended up keep sitting on the couch. <laughs> it was well, good. Yeah, sometimes yeah. you need to do that, though. Uh, I guess so. I, f- yeah. I feel unproductive pretty much today, though. Right. So, well, today's episode um, is 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 your idea, and we'll, yes, we'll sort of run with it and I, see how it goes, Jeff. Um, so the last twelve, I mean. Ever since we've ever met, um, I know that you have a culinary background, and then you know you you are my um, um, designated uh, in-house chef, and everything cooking um, I get to ask you things about. Um, and uh, Jeff, I want to know <laughs> how all this started because I, I think there's some good stories in here. Well, we we touched on it briefly uh, when we had our Joshua Tree experience episode. I told you that previously going to Joshua Tree with guys from the shop and in the Marine Corps, that I'd always cooked, mm-hmm. cooked for the, for for everybody out there because it's just something I was always drawn to and it was fun. So I think going through that kind of 
being in the outdoor environment, being in an adventure environment, and then cooking, I thought, man, when I retire, I could be a chef on an adventure or a guiding company. So you... So that started the seed. You okay, planted the seed. You were in the Marine Corps. Yeah. When, when did you join? In 1982. How old were you, rather? 19. I went to boot camp at 19. At 19. August of 1982. And you retired. So you did your 20 years. 22. You did 22 years. Yeah. And what year was that? I retired in 2004. 2004. Yeah. Good Lord. <laughs> 2004. Okay. So 2004, you retire, and ultimately you get to move on to a new career. Yes. Is that the idea? By yeah. calling it retiring? Yeah. Right. So get out and then... 22 years, so you're... Four, I can't do math. 43? 42? Yeah. What? 40, what's... Uh, 19 plus 22. 39 plus 2 is 41, right? Yes. Yeah, 39 plus... 41. Two, 41. So 41 years old, you started a new career. Yes. And that's when you decided you were going to... Well, that's when I started cooking. I think the seed was planted... A long, long time because anytime we had a function in the Marine Corps, I gravitated towards the grill, cooking out, cooking hamburgers, doing, you know, just sort of taking over the food prep portion of for, for a unit function, shop function or whatever it was. And then that sort of became my trademark. And then I used to joke with everybody, hey, get away from the grill. I got a PhD in barbecue. Always joked about, yeah, when I was in culinary school, I got a PhD in barbecue. So just always gravitated towards that. And when I was stationed in North Carolina, um, which is where I was born, Cherry Point, North Carolina, I have a lot of family there. So we always had big gatherings on the weekends. My grandmother, aunts, uncles, like everybody, you know, my parents, everybody always for a function. We are a birthday or anniversary. We always had a big function. And I always, again, gravitated towards the kitchen and did a lot of the food prep. Food prep. My Aunt Wanda started calling me Chef Jeff just because I was gravitated towards the kitchen. And I used to joke, yeah, well, you know, culinary school was good to me. So this was uh, 90s, you know, joking about culinary school and having a PhD and grilling and stuff. Whereas you hadn't even done that yet. Hadn't even done it. It was just a joke. Yeah, just a joke. I didn't even know. Honestly, I probably didn't even know that culinary school was a thing. You'd heard about cooking school or it was, uh, you know, but kind of used it as a joke or as an icebreaker. And then uh, I think one of the deciding factors was when I was in Japan in 94 and 95, uh, I used to get the guys up on a Saturday and they were like in in their barracks room or whatever playing video games. They're like, no, man, we're not sitting around playing video games all day. We're going to load up, pack a grill, go down to the river and barbecue, cook out, do something. So we started incorporating adventure and activity, but we, we carried stuff in order to cook, whether it was we found rocks. But we always carried a little grate, and then we made a fire, and we cooked and did things. So that sort of probably more solidified the thing of cooking. And then as it got close to retirement, let's say 99 and 2000, I knew that I was going to be getting out. I I got a new, got 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 assigned a new billet, and I had some time. the The Food Network had blown up. There was a lot of things going on on the Food Network. Everybody talked about Emerald and Iron Chef and all these shows on the Food Network. So I, I was intrigued and started watching a lot of the shows on Food Network and thought, it, hey, that would be an interesting kind of life. It kind of evolved from like, I'm going to cook for a guiding company to like, hey, this whole chef thing might be fun. 
So I started looking, at, you know, at job openings in a restaurant three before three or four years before I got out and seeing what it was going to take to work in a restaurant. Because growing up, I never worked in a restaurant, never did any, never did service, never dishwashed, never worked at a fast food, never did anything. So it's just, I'm going into it blind. And I started looking at what it was going to take everyone, you know, to be a cook or to be a chef or to work in a kitchen. People wanted experience, four or five years experience. And they're like, I'm doing the math. Like, well, that makes me 45 years old. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a, you know, it's a young man's game getting into it at 45. And then a lot of people wanted schooling. And then I started doing research about culinary schools. And that's when I got serious. About 99 started thinking about, I'm going to do culinary school. 2000, it all solidified, and I actually started taking, <laughs> sounds fun, taking night classes, you know, the really? old joke, oh, going to night school. But I started taking night classes at a college in San Diego and working, and all the instructors at the school were, were working chefs in restaurants or hotels or mm -hmm. different things in San Diego. So you sort of developed a network and, and you worked. Mm -hmm. You had the opportunity to you know, to learn from actually people in the industry. They taught during the day and came in, I mean, they worked during the day and taught school at night. So I felt I was getting some very good knowledge and having a lot of fun. You know, it was, it was new, it was exciting to me. And it's, you know, maybe it's that whole military or Marine Corps thing, but it's an, it was another opportunity to wear a uniform. Huh. You know, the chef coat, yeah. the, the pants and, you know, ironing and pleating them and making huh. them look starched and and sharp, you and know? your 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 class schedule worked with your work schedule. Yeah, most most of the every classes, most of the classes that I was taking started at six o'clock at night. Wow, I'd get off work at four thirty, and it was only two nights a week, or some depending on the schedule that I have. But I'd have two solid nights mm -hmm. a week. Sometimes d during mm -hmm. what was going on, maybe three. But you know, leave work at four four thirty. Mm -hmm. Get to the get to the college, change in the uniform, and then start classes at six. What 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 school was that? I, with Grossmont Grossmont College in San Diego. So not even a cooking school. It was just the. It was the college. two yeah the, the the two year degree the two year program at Grossmont College. They had a really renowned culinary arts program. Oh, it was okay. yeah no it was renowned and they and it was one of those things that that the, the chef there he he was on a uh, on the culinary Olympic team. And so he, he was good and he was knowledgeable and he was passionate. And so he, he taught caring and then he hired people the same way. Oh. So it was, like I said, chefs that were actually working in the industry, people that would work in a restaurant or at a hotel or doing something. Like the banquet, when we took banquets, uh, the chef that did it, he worked for Hornblower, the, the, big, oh, yeah. the big cruise lines down in San Diego. So he was versed in preparing mm. banquets and and things like that. So So you did that for two years. Yeah. While you were still in the service. Yeah. Wow. So by the time you retired then you were ready to go. Yeah, I had my degree. I was done. So nice. Yeah, finished it. And then um, you know, it was one of those things through through the college and being um because I it's something I wanted. And, it, you know, and there was other students who were like crazy passionate about it. So, you know, we, I don't know, I guess you excelled or the cream rises to the top or whatever. So you get picked for certain things. You know, the chef would pick, hey, you want to come and work at my restaurant during Christmas, you know, oh. at the hotel, you know, you, 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 you know, you've d demonstrated and I want to bring you in and give you some real life experience. Well, one of the other things that was happening, because I said the chef there, the instructor, he was part of the culinary Olympic team. 
Well, he had a chef in San Diego that was working and trying to be on the Culinary Olympic team and needed an assistant or an intern. And he didn't have one. So I, the chef asked me if I would be interested in working with this guy. Okay. Kind of as assistant, you know, he's plating and he's doing things and you know, you're going to help him. I'm like, are you kidding me? That'd be, that's a phenomenal opportunity. So met with the chef and, you know, long story short, he ultimately didn't do the culinary Olympics, but me and him connected. I actually started staging and working for him at his restaurant. What word did you just use? Staging. Uh, it's a French word meaning to go and work, try out, work behind, shadow. Uh, oh. And it's one of the things when the cooking, you know, in the 80s, 90s, and, and, and in the 2000s, when, when being a chef or a cook was very popular, um, and the demand to work in a restaurant was great. Chefs had the opportunity for you to come in and do a tryout or come in and work or come in and see what it's like. So, you know, there is, there's everyone's of the mindset says, well, go work in as many restaurants as you can. If you have to work for free, work for free until you find one you like, but gather as much knowledge and as experience as you can. So that's sort of what I was trying to do. But he asked me to come and stage and work at his restaurant. And it allowed me to take all the stuff that was happening at school in a sterile environment yeah. and then use it in a real world environment. And his philosophy was, so I know they showed you how to do this at school. Let me see if you can eight cut a duck. So, you know, you would eight cut a duck, break it down. He goes, oh, great. Here, here's, here's a trick. Do it this way. Here's something you could do. And then, you know, so you're doing it and you're working and, you know, it was a French place, so they made French onion soup. So one of the things you had to do was slice 50 pounds of onions twice a week. Well, And people ask me to this day, how can you can cut onions and not get teary-eyed? Well, for a year, I cut 150 pounds of onions a week on a slicer, and you get used to it. So, yeah, cutting onions really doesn't bother me anymore. You know? So you're telling me that you, there's actually an ability to build up a, to- build up a tolerance for onions? Yeah. I That's mean, crazy. I, you know, granted the first couple of times I did, my eyes were watering so bad that I couldn't even see what I was doing. But the more you do it next, you know, either it, you just either get used to it and you just blink and the the tears go out of your way or you just don't tear up. I mean, I can cut onions now at the house. I can cut the onions and people in the living room are like, are you cutting onions? My God, my eyes are burning. And it's like, huh? Yeah, I guess so. I don't even feel it. Wow. So working with him and doing that. And then after he saw that I was in it to win it, he would say, hey, let, give, me a, give me a special. Give me something you want to do. Let's work on something. Hey, and if you make this and it doesn't work, guess what? We'll try it again, and then we'll determine what went wrong or what Whoa. went right. That takes a special person to offer that to you. Yeah. So it was phenomenal. And so it would come in, and he says, okay, so he gave me three or four days because I want you to make, I want you to make the soup of the day for the weekend. We have the French onion soup, which is the house soup. Then I want you to make a soup of the day, and huh. we'll have that. Huh. I'm like, okay. He goes, you figure it out. Let me know. You make it. At this it. point, you're still an intern or stodging, whatever. Yeah. So there's like legit guys who are actually on staff doing cooking yeah. for the restaurant. Right. And but he asked they're me, not. But they're not in part of this. Yeah. So he asked me to make a soup wow. of the day. So I came up and I, I made a soup of the day. You know, I made it like on Thursday and then he, he used it on Friday for lunch. 
And then, um, you know, so when I came in Friday to work, I said, well, how the soup? He goes, well, we have a problem. It was so good that we sold out. I don't have any soup for tonight, so you have to make it again. Wow. Yeah. So that very episode and until, and up until I quit cooking and even though I'm, I, I, I talk with my buddy and we do things, soup has always been something I focus mm-hmm. and pay a lot of attention to. And when I've done wine dinners in the past and have done things, some of the things that have got the biggest reviews or the biggest raves has been the soup course. Really? Because a lot of people, it's soup. Well, just make a soup, throw it in there, make a course out of it. Well, it's not just soup. You start with a good stock. You start with good ingredients. You layer things in there. You layer this. If you take the time that you take to fabricate fish or to cut a filet or to to break down a duck and that you would cook for an entree, if you take that same kind of time and do it with a simple ingredient or the perceived simple ingredient as soup, it can blow people's mind. And I learned that from staging with him because that's the first thing he wanted me to make. And that was his mindset. He goes, if you can take the simple things and put heart, dedication, love, and passion into it, then it's going to be a remarkable dish, regardless of what it is. So I've taken that, and that's the reason soups, when we do a special wine dinner, we've always done something. I've always gravitated to being the soup guy. When I was growing up and working in other restaurants, I prided myself on making the soup of the day. Because... It's something that a lot of people wanted to make as an afterthought. The restaurant opens at 11. Some people would start making the soup of the day at 1030. Like, well, that's not really much thought into the soup of the day now, is it? I would think about the soup of the day three or four days in advance and know what I was going to do and start at seven in the morning to have just because you want to put that care and passion into it, no matter what you're cooking. So that and, and him, the chef. Kuher, K-U-E-H-E-R-R, is the chef um, that allowed me huh. to, to experiment in the kitchen and to do things in the kitchen. And he fostered that type of mentality. He says, well, if it doesn't work, we'll try yeah, it again. That's wonderful. You know, right. so as I, and so I took that mentality too. And, and if I had guys working in the kitchen and doing things, and they say, Chef, I want to do a special. I'm like, okay. And then I use the same kind of thought that he taught me. Let me know what it is. Cost it out. Tell me what stations it's coming from and how it's going to impact service. Wow. It's one thing that, hey, I want to do a special. That's fine. But if you've if you got a special that's got 17 pickups on it, it's not going to be able to flow through a dinner service. So you have to not only think about what the dish is going to do, how it's going to be perceived or received by the, by the customer, you also have to know how it's going to impact everybody in the kitchen. So what's a pickup? Like when you're cooking and say your special is a filet or a, or a trout, then you have to cook that trout. What's the side of the trout? Who's going to cook the sides? What's sauce going on the trout? So pickup is like picking up the pan and everything that's going to take to make that dish. Is it three people picking up a pan and cooking four different things? Or are you finishing it in the pan and are you incorporating a side that we already have? So those are things that you all have to think about. It's like people want to do big elaborate specials. And if you're running 200 covers on a Friday night, you know, and you have a dish that takes 15 minutes to prepare and every other dish is like a nine minute prep, 
so it can slow down service. So a lot of people don't think about that when they want to write a special. They just want to like, ooh, ego, I want to do a special. Can this be my special? So you have to think about all of those things going into it. And that's one of the things that working with that chef, staging, allowed me to do. You know, so he, that's how he taught. He says, yeah, it's great to do a special. Yeah. Let's, what are we going to use? So we have these mm-hmm. here. We have this here. Let's don't buy anything extra. Right. Let's take something we have, mm-hmm. change it, swap it, you know, switch it around mm-hmm. and make it special. So, you know, so it's almost like free money. Yeah. I don't have to buy something new. Let's make something new out of what we have. So okay, that was kind of the, the thing that, you know. And this, and I'm still uh-huh. in the Marine Corps, still in work, you know, still going to school. Uh-huh. And these are the kind of life right. lessons that this guy is teaching me and allowing me to experiment with in his restaurant. So I have two reactions. Okay. One is um, the soup. Um, he said he you ran he ran out um, on Friday, and then you had to make more. Right. Because it was so good. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, now the, typically you 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 know you're at the restaurant and you're like, okay, hey, you know what? Um, uh, what would you like for your soup? Because it, you know your hey your dinner comes with the soup. Yeah. And so we have French onion and we have a roasted tomato and blue cheese. There you go. Okay. So in my thought process. I go, oh, okay, I've had French onion before. I've never had roasted tomato and blue cheese. Oh, so I might try that. And or, ooh, I hate French onion. Therefore, I'm going to opt for your second option, which is roasted tomato and blue cheese. Yeah. How does it get to a point that it's such in high demand that it runs out? Um, Because in a restaurant, uh, chatter goes around. Um, a server was a, hey, uh, our soup of the day is, uh, roasted tomato and blue cheese. Uh, we, we're debuting it today and it's been crazy popular. Everyone's ordered it and everyone's had nothing but good things to say about it. Oh, sounds good. I'll try that. Are people sitting at a table beside a table? Wow, man, did you try this? And they're like, you know, people here, mm-hmm. hey, that's crazy good soup you know, or crazy good this or crazy good that. So people will look at what other people are eating and kind of listen to what's being said. And a server can pick up on that as well. Uh And then that allows her to like upsell or to sell something or to allow the the customer to try something new. So I guess I must have always been oblivious to that. Yes. I mean, I mean. Had to, if I'm not attentive to whatever. And or if the server's like, oh yeah, that's my favorite. Like, Sometimes I still don't give it a lo- enough stock because, like, okay, it's your favorite. It doesn't mean I'm going to like it. But um, I, I, to this day, will base some decisions on a service recommendation. If the server presents themselves, her, his or herself, as a knowledgeable professional server. Now, okay, so therefore, is this a certain type of restaurant that... Uh, uh, invites that suggestion versus, you know, I'm at Applebee's and it's like, uh, I don't know what I feel like today. And like, oh, well, you can always get the Buffalo Wings. That's my personal favorite. Yeah. Well, like, and I'm, I'm using quotey fingers and nobody can see it, but in like a white tablecloth restaurant, the servers are a little different. Mm-hmm. And, and the, and the, atmo- the, 
the entrees and things are a little different. So, and I, as a chef, would teach and instruct servers. Oh, got it. You know what I mean? Okay. And like every time we do a menu, every time we do a menu change, we would I would prepare and cook every new item on the menu. They get to taste it. Have a sit down with the serving staff. Got it. And tell them what's in it, how it's prepared, what allergies you need to be you know, alerted to. Got it. You know, hey, it's cooked with it's cooked with flour. It has wheat in it, or you know, gluten. And no, it can't be substituted because of how it's prepped. Some of the items are prepped with flour before the actual entree is cooked. And then we let them taste it and eat it. And then out of out of that tasting, they're gonna the, the servers are gonna gravitate to something they like. And sometimes the server will gravitate, you know, it's just the nature of the game, to the most expensive dish because that's the one they want you to buy. And sometimes the server will gravitate to maybe not the most expensive dish, but a dish that could be, you know, obscure or different, yeah. but they really like it. Now now this gives them a chance to interact with the customer and to explain the dish mm-hmm. and then kind of pique the customer's mm-hmm. interest. So the only time I can even envision something like that happening is when I watch Ratatouille. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean... Right? Because yeah. at the end... Right, yeah. I mean, you know, everyone finds out about the rat. You know, they're cooking, and and it's like, oh my gosh, like everyone loves it. You know, people are asking about it because they're looking and they're they're across across the tables. Yeah, and like what is he eating? And oh my gosh, you and know. and there's uh, a very renowned chef helped with the food portion of that of that movie, and that was Thomas Keller, uh, French Laundry per se. You know, just one of the first American chefs to have multiple. Michelin stars. So, but there's something in that, and I, I, I lost my train of thought, but there's something in that movie that still to this day, when I prepare a dish or when I try something, or if it's something I haven't had in a while, you have a visceral experience, a memory. Like when he ate the ratatouille mm-hmm. and it took him back to his childhood. There are tastes today that I try to replicate on a menu or a dish because of the experiences or the memory that I have or that I had growing up trying that dish or doing that dish. And it's like, so you eat it, it gives you this this overwhelming sense of, man, that was good. It takes you back to a time in your childhood, like when we talked about bike riding, where, where things were different. Mm-hmm. And so I always wrote a menu or did things with food because I grew up in a family where dinner was important. It's like Sunday dinners where like everyone at the table, you ate Sunday dinners and it's just a coming together, you know? And when my kids are growing up and even though they're all moved out now, we always try to get together and do a cookout or have a dinner at the house because I feel that food is a calming thread that brings everyone together. So when I wrote a menu or did things, I always wanted to go back to an experience that I had and then try to replicate that some way, somehow, because I feel it, it's the bond, it's the thread that holds everyone together. Everyone has to eat. Everyone, you know, may not have had the experiences eating or, or childhood memories of certain things that I've had or, or, or what you've had. It might be different, but family eating or people together hmm. breaking bread is a very just like uh, natural, uh, you know, thing. I, I tell you, like, I mean... I don't mean to tangent a bit here, but 
going back to how, you know, I grew up and missed out on bike riding as a kid and, and uh, you know, now I'm experiencing as adult stuff. But, like, sure, I, I grew up with childhood food that I remember to this day and I, I will still order it, you right. know? Right, yeah. Um, but it's just, like, I'm somewhere in my brain i'm i've never i'm never connecting like a certain memory with i guess like a nostalgic value that i have to go hardcore reminisce it and then therefore i bring it with me into my into my adult life yeah my wife does yeah she does it right and uh-huh. and and therefore and i love her for that because i live vicariously through her memories right Right, and I almost want to experience the way she explain describes her memories. I it makes me want to relive them, right? And therefore, we will go live them out in the sense of, you know, like she grew up on you know country fried, you know country fried steak, right? Yeah, you know, and and chicken and dumplings, which <sighs> sometimes wasn't really chicken inside yeah. there; it was a bunny rabbit, you know, right. um, and. So I got to eat it, you know, when we were married and her grandpa made it and stuff like that. So I'm right. like, oh, this is cool. Yeah. But man, like, I don't know. There's something, the neurons aren't firing for me to to ever have really truly connected. I mean, okay, fine. I guess I go to a, obviously I'm Chinese. So when I go to a Chinese restaurant, I'm going to order the stuff that I know. Yeah. Right? And therefore- But you sort of get a visceral experience. I know we've talked about it with like dim sum, like how dim sum is exciting and fun for you. Yeah. Well, the experience is fun. Okay. Right? You know? Yeah. You know, these angry Asian people trying to serve you food, <laughs> you know? And- I don't know what they're saying, and they're putting little stamps on pieces of paper. And at the end of it, it it's only twenty-seven dollars. So, like, Uh how did that even happen? So, like, is that is that the deal? Is that what I'm experiencing? Is that I'm trying to go back to my childhood? There, I I mean, without you know, I'm not. I would say yes, because, um, you know, I grew up in the South, so food maybe in the South or when I was growing up, and maybe have a has a different meaning. But family dinners were huge. That's what you did. Everyone, the busy day. I mean, and it's, sometimes it's portrayed in like 60s or 50s movies and you're all sitting around. So Johnny, how was school today? Right. You know, and, and that's kind of like a generic sterilized version of it. But sitting around the dinner table, having conversation about your day, about what's happening, you know, is 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 something that's ingrained and you know i was i was talking with with brian you know the sous chef of mine that we've cooked together forever and i remember growing you know being in high school and we finally moved to north georgia and my great aunt and uncle um you know he was retired she was a retired school teacher they had 300 and some odd acres of of you know land and they raised cattle and every year, you know, you they'd butcher a cow mm-hmm. and have it set up, and that was their meat for the year. And they also had a garden, and everything that she grew in the garden was, like, used daily, and if whatever was left over, then they grew extra, and they made preserves. You know, they made tomato sauce. They made peach preserves. They made huh. all of these things from the garden. is all produced and cooked and saved so that when the winter, when the things aren't growing, you still have summer fresh vegetables. So... That, you know, in high school, things that you do in high school is a very, gets ingrained in your brain. Whoa. So, and I was telling Brian that I, I, you know, my great aunt, I think she cooked for a living. She would get up and have breakfast 
for everybody. You know, and if we're there and if like I'm, we're doing farm work or we're doing this or we're doing that, breakfast was served. You ate breakfast at six o'clock in the morning because you have to go out and work, right? And there's always ham, there's always eggs, there's always biscuits, there's always bacon. And then the biscuits and ham, you always put a couple of those together and you put, it sounds funny, you put them in your shirt pocket. So now as you're bush hogging or driving a tractor, really? you can eat a sausage and biscuit or bacon and biscuit. Those are always left on the table. So if you had to come back to the house for something, you could always grab a snack. But it wasn't, it wasn't Fritos or Cheetos. It was fresh buttermilk biscuits and country ham or Dang. bacon. So after breakfast, she would go out in the garden, do what she needed to do. She would come back in. Now she's prepping for lunch. Ate lunch at noon. So the longest part of the day is between breakfast and lunch. That's the reason you took a snack, a biscuit or some ham. Come back at noon, there's lunch. Granted, there's still some biscuit and ham left over, but now there's black eyed peas, there's fried chicken, there's ham to make sandwiches. So it's a sit down lunch. So you sit down and you ate lunch. And at one o'clock you got up, you went back out to work, whether it's painting a barn, roofing or whatever. Her job was to clean up, go out to the garden, get stuff and start getting ready for dinner. We ate dinner at five o'clock. What in the world? So she revolved her day around cooking three solid squares a day. And then after dinner, you know, everybody helped clean up and then, you know. What the yeah. heck? And that's what she did on the daily. And if we were doing farm work, that, that's, that was the day. That's how you did it. That's what you did. So that's kind of ingrained in me, you know. So I always feel food is a very important part and it can take you back to places. So, and, you de- and I sort of developed this and, it, and I guess that's the reason I was always drawn going back to his talking earlier, mm-hmm. to being at the grill or to cooking or to being, making and doing things with your hands because it took me back again, like bike riding with a group of people, took me back to a part of my childhood or my development, you know, as a, as a teenager, preteen and a teenager and going through high school and realize how important family is, how important sitting around the table with family and breaking bread. So I guess that's the reason I gravitated towards being a chef. So you always sort of take that mentality with you into your kitchen. And that's what drove me because I knew, I knew how, Mm -hmm. how exciting and enjoyable and like reconnecting food could be. So that's sort of how I wrote and did menus. So everyone, everyone says, what type of fucking uh, type of cooking do you do or food do you do? And I would say I would do Southern inspired French influenced because I really like the mentality that the French have about cooking, the perfection, the the dedication, the hours, and the things it takes to make a simple sauce or to do this mm-hmm. or to do that, and how you can't miss a step, how it all has to, it's, it's regimented. And I think coming out of the Marine Corps for 22 years, there's a hierarchy, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. you, you, you know where you stand, you know what you do. In a kitchen, there's a hierarchy as well. So it wasn't really a culture shock to me to come from mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. a hierarchy and then what he says goes and then, you know, you, you dictate down or whatever yeah, yeah. or ensure that things are done. Mm-hmm. So you sort of snap right into that and you kind of okay. fill, you know, and it mm-hmm. kind of fills a void, I mm-hmm. guess. And, uh, you know, and I always say you, you can really tell when the chips are down and you've been in the kitchen for 12 hours and you still have 45 covers to do and it's 15 minutes to closing, who's with you? You know, oh, really? how dedicated are the people you have? Are they just as excited about cooking this dish at, 
at 15 minutes before closing as they were when they introduced it to you to put on the on the menu as a special. Mm. And if they are, then that's the guys you want on your team. Because, you know, some people will go through the motions and it's just a job. And that's in any job, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, Brian and I used to talk all the time. If you have a, if you have a kitchen with, with 15 people, you're lucky if you have 10% that have the passion and the drive and desire really? that you have. I was lucky and that Brian cooked with me for so long that he brought that passion. So we already are ahead of the game. We had two people with passion and, and drive and, and, you know, a, a desire to, to seek perfection. Cause it's like, it's perfection. There's like, it's a uh, perfection may not be there, but if you're constantly striving for perfection, mm-hmm. then you're always going to be close. You know what I mean? So you always, yeah, so on that dish or on that food and on that thing, you constantly want to try, strive for it to be perfect. And if everyone, maybe not everyone, but if you got two or three other people in the kitchen who are working major parts, if they're striving for that perfection too, then you know you got a good team and the food and the product and the presentation that you're putting out is, is going to be good. Okay. So I think that was some of the drive and some of the things that I really liked. And, you know, there, there's corny things, not corny things, but things that can sum it up about cooking and the experience of it is, and there's a reason it's called culinary arts. You are an artist. The things that you do and present on that plate is, is a representation of you. It's the same guy that paints on the wall, that does graffiti or does, you know, whatever your art is, it's, it's how you express yourself. So you put your heart and soul into it. So one of the things that... um Anthony Bourdain and uh, said, in a, said in a book, he says, yeah, I'm a culinary artist. And at the, when you, if you don't feel a piece of yourself leaving every time that a plate walks out, then you're in the wrong job. So it, that plate represents you. You're putting everything, that, that's your art. So you have to, there's a piece of you on every, every plate that goes out. I must be a cook by numbers guy then. <laughs> Well, everybody's got to start somewhere. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. But there's a desire to cook. If you, even if you're cooking by numbers, you're striving for something, right? So that it doesn't suck. Well, then that's, that's, that's your art. You don't want your art to suck. So, I mean, you, you can break it down and you can generalize it all yeah. you want. But ultimately, anytime you do something that you're presenting for people to see, to hold, to try, to taste, to look at, it's representing you. Now, whether you... Think about that subconsciously going in. Right. Ultimately, deep down, under the layers, like peeling an onion, peeling it back, it's well, there. Well, currently, the representation is people don't want me to cook for them. That's the, <laughs> They don't get your art. You that, know what I'm saying? <laughs> that's what I've been trying to say, Jeff. That's what I've been trying you, to you say. You just don't understand my oh medium. My you don't understand gosh. my art. So, Okay. Um, so the what was your first job after the stodging? He hired me. Nice. To work at his restaurant. And what was that called? Uh, Old Delice. A-U-X-D-E-L-I-C-E-S. It means delicious little things. So and French, that was in San Diego? Yeah. Mira Mesa, near, near the base. Little, little French place. Still there or no? Nope. They, um, so I was cooking with them. So two weeks after he offered, uh, you know, to pay me, <laughs> I got, I got orders, you know, and we, we. Oh. Yeah. So went, you know, went to Kuwait, Iraq, and did all that. Came back, actually got to, got to work for him for, for a few more weeks. And then um, 
the owner of the restaurant was also the owner of a wine boutique. So he was trying to grow the wine boutique and actually the restaurant was closing. So, wow. so I came back, worked for a couple more weeks, knew I was retiring. Um, and then we moved, you know, from San Diego to Temecula. Got it. And then, uh, you know. And then you lost touch with them, I assume. Actually, um, I've talked to him two or three times. Uh, we're actually friends on LinkedIn. I visit him. I have visited him at one or two of his restaurants that he's worked at. And uh, we reach out from time to time, you know, now, how, so, how are you um, doing? So a quick thought here, not quick. There's no such thing as quick. A thought <laughs> here is that uh, he he's a chef. Yeah. But he doesn't, and there's, there's still a difference of being a chef and being an owner of a restaurant per se. Yes. It's not your restaurant. And yeah. so an owner will hire you. To be to be the chef, and it doesn't that more sound like okay? Um, let's see. In football terms, uh, we're gonna hire, we're gonna pick up Peyton Manning, and we're gonna build a team around Peyton Manning. Yes. But as soon as Peyton Manning gets hurt or decides to retire, what the heck? Well, that, you're done. Well, then uh, you know that's. Well, I always trained in like. And, and Brian's a perfect example because I would go on vacation and Brian could run the kitchen. And I do, I trust Brian to do the specials because Brian has worked, we've worked together for, you know, nine or 10 years, side by side cooking. You know, he's the one guy that could read my handwriting and know, knows the thought process behind of what I was doing when I was doing it. So I would trust him to do. So when you hire a sous chef or somebody to, to be your second or to be on, you know, to, to be your right hand man, it's it's a tricky, challenging situation. Because well, at this point, I'm even saying the owner is now hiring an executive chef, right? Yeah, and so the and there and there's a there's the terms all so, sort of get discombobulated. A chef, you know, in French is someone who's in charge of running a kitchen, and actually, you know, they call it the chef de cuisine um, in French terms. That means running the kitchen. Um, so you know, Americans they they make their own terms and do different things. So a chef is typically the one in, in running a kitchen. Um, the executive chef uh, is one, and it's and it, it kind of the terms are interchangeable depending on where you work or what you do. An executive chef or chef, an executive chef is the one who's making all the decisions on the staff, scheduling. So you do all the executive work. You do all you know. You're writing all the menus. You do the costing. You're handling. You're handling invoices. You're doing the hiring, firing, and training of people. Okay. You know, so that's sort of your job. You know, like in big corporate terms, an executive chef might not cook anymore because he's worked up the chain and now he's just a figurehead. Okay. That's where your chef to cuisines at your four restaurants that you currently have under your umbrella now carry on all that you want to have done. The executive chef is going to write the menus and do this. And the chef de cuisines at each individual restaurant is now responsible for ensuring that it's done and executed properly. So that's, you know, in a big scene. But like most of the restaurants I worked in were kind of, was, was kind of small. Uh, the largest one that I worked in, I had, you know, I had a staff of 40. You know, I had uh, four sous chefs, two a.m. sous chefs and two p.m. sous chefs. PM sous chefs. And then you had your lead line cooks, you had your lead grill, you had your lead saute, you had your lead, you know, gar marge or in charge of salad. So it's it's a pyramid. I'm up here. I have four 
mm-hmm. subordinates under me, then each of them have four and then each of, you know, so it goes down and down. So you break and have a hierarchy and, and a structure mm-hmm. for your 40 people. Mm-hmm. So they know who's in charge or what, you know, who's responsible for everything. And ultimately guy number 40, if he does something wrong, it's ultimately on the top guy on the pyramid. Right. You know, so which goes back, you know, kind of that, that, yeah. That's the reason I guess I snapped into it so well because I, that's the mentality I've All had right. for the previous 22 years. Got it. You know, so he tells me to do it, I'm going to do it. If he wants me to chop that way, I'm going to okay. chop that way. So. All right. All right. Yeah. All right. So. Okay. So you came back after a Kuwait or whatever, and then you, uh, what did you do then? Well, um. Well, what, what year was this then now? So this is uh, approaching in on 2004. Okay. I, still, I still had contacts at school. Um, so I actually took another class at school just because there was a class available. And one of the, one of the uh, teachers, TAs, teaching aides that helped with the chef, had an aunt and an uncle who had just bought a restaurant in Palma Valley, the Lazy H Hotel, out there at the base of Palomar Mountain. And they were looking for some help. Because the, the, the chef that was there was the son of the original owners. So the original owners sold it to this guy's aunt and uncle. And uh, they were looking, they were going to leave him to be, you know, let him cook, but just bring in some help. And I wanted a job. So mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, cool. So I went out there and I worked with the guy for three weeks. And he, you know, comes to tell me, he says, well, I think you can handle it. Yeah. I have a bad back. I'm not coming back. Wow. So again, within three weeks of being at a restaurant, it just I, happened. I'm in charge. <laughs> yes, just happens. But you know, so that was fun and it was good and it was a learning experience. My first restaurant, my first everything. You know, it's like uh-huh. I came up with specials. I'm having a costing. I'm doing all of this uh-huh. stuff. All the stuff you learned in school and doing now it's practical. You yeah. Know? Okay. So, uh, how many times did you screw up? I, I, not many, honestly, because it, it was a pretty simple menu. You know, there were, there were some things that maybe, um, I, I would admit that in my first three years out of, out of the Marine Corps and being in the kitchen, I may, I was probably stubborn and I was under that and I was under that. I'm the chef. This is how I want it done, you know, and not really wanting to work with owners or kind of like would, would uh-huh. give some pushback to owners. Uh-huh. Well, I don't want it that way. Well, that doesn't make any sense to me. You know, ah, ah, you know, so, and then you realize, well, maybe I should go someplace else and, and ran into the same thing. So it took me a couple, you know, a few years to realize that what was portrayed on TV and what you read in all the books about French cooking in actual real life in America, the two are completely different. You know, you, you don't, get ahead by screaming, yelling, and throwing pans, you know, not that I was a pan thrower, uh-huh. but if, if, if I got mad or somebody did something wrong, sometimes the, the, the military mentality would come back and then I would let them know and know on certain terms, right. they did something wrong. And next thing you know, you're explaining yourself to uh, yeah. somebody in the office with HR on the door. You can't call somebody stupid. I actually didn't call him stupid. I asked him if he was stupid. They didn't, you know, they didn't really see the distinction. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> and then uh, I get then, then I get in trouble. Well, no, we, uh, we, we, we can't talk to people that way in these days. I'm like, well, uh, you know, Gordon Ramsay does. Well, that's TV. So, 
but uh so you learn you learn quick got it you know that yeah. that um uh-huh. maybe for 22 years i don't want to say sheltered but it's a different what uh recipe what what style of cooking were you doing right then and there uh same i i did a lot of like because that was what my memory had you know mm-hmm. as much cookbooks as you as you can see that i read and did things i always went back to something that i was familiar with you know a southern a southern something and maybe changing it up a little bit or i had i remember having this at a church picnic you know and then trying to rehash you know that. what be what's really cool about what you just said or or, or implying is that you know that you have your specialty right you know that that you're that southern french and you know i mean uh, sometimes i wish that's what would happen in the bike shop like you know hey uh maybe you know i, I don't know if it's as simple as saying well this bike shop's a mountain bike a mountain biking shop right you know so therefore we're going to be good at mountain biking if you have a mountain bike then come into us and then even more so um you know within the mountain bikes we're going to be a cross country race shop or we're going to be a downhill shop or an enduro shop right yeah, yeah. but then but anymore we're just a bike shop and we have to know how to do everything on on any bike yeah. and it's so hard anymore right. because of the technology and stuff like that so that's almost like going into a french restaurant and be like yeah i would like some szechuan chicken yeah <laughs> what do you mean you can't do such are you not a restaurant you don't know how to cook well apparently you can do that at the cheesecake factory because they have a 200 page menu they do, <laughs> right? But man, yeah, no. So yeah, that totally. And you know, and I, I've cooked and done different things. Some of my favorite things to cook as comfort food now, because I've you know I've been away from where I grew up for so long. But I still draw back to that, and there's still flavors and things that take me back, and I can you know almost cry. It's like ah, oh, that take you know that's remarkable. But I love cooking Italian food. Just something, and I guess it's like, you know, something simple. And it's so, so uh, rustic and great. And it just, it can bring back memories as well. Mm-hmm. You know, something about mm-hmm. an al dente pasta mm-hmm. with garlic and tomatoes and some basil and nothing but those, and, and some, some butter and wine. Those four ingredients. And it's like, ah, that's comfort food. That's good food. You know, something about that just like. Tickles, uh, you know, tickles your heart. So there's um, the dish that I uh, mo- I gravitate towards many times is uh, clams in wine, white wine, white wine sauce, yeah. wine linguine and clams in a white wine sauce. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, anytime I see that on the menu, it's like boom. Oh, I know what I want. Yeah, but it's so, but it's dumb. But too. you're a big seafood fan I'm too. A big seafood. So fan. again, I feel. That that's something you connect with. Because I like seafood. Yeah. Regardless of the reason. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, but see, I love it too, but I can pinpoint growing up, you know, and shrimping and crabbing and doing different things. All right. I think you're right, but it hadn't been when I was an adult again, the first time I tasted clams in a white wine sauce all by itself no linguine nothing yeah right and i'm kind of like really it's just clams in this soup and i'm like kind of bummed about it really because like at least get some french bread with it 
I don't remember. Okay. I probably did, right? Yeah. However, my point is, I scooped, or whatever, whatever. I had my spoon, and scooped up the spoonful of soup, stew, whatever you want to call it, broth, broth. Yeah. And as soon as that sucker hit my palate, it was like, oh my goodness. This is the craziest tasting, be- most beautiful thing ever. Right. And 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 now, I I want to replicate that. So yeah. that is an experience that I had. Yeah. So, yeah, and it doesn't like I said, it doesn't have to be childhood experience. I just there's I, something I you will eat somewhere it's sometime. So beautiful. Some you know something that strikes you. Yeah. And then you, then when it strikes you again, it yeah. takes you back to that time, and it's like, oh. And if you know, if it if it's as good as you remember, then that's what I feel. That's what cooking is about: is to like reconnect with you and your whatever yeah. you know. So, and I love it. It's fun. It's it's enjoyable. I will tell you, and the things that TV shows don't show you, it's hard work. It's long. It's grueling. You know, and there's. Little room for error financially, like no room for error financially. So, you know, you've, you've got to count your, you know, you, your inventory control, everything, your portion control, your labor control. You learn a lot of math quick and how, you know, I can sell five steak dishes at $50. Okay, that makes a little money. Or I can sell 100 dishes at $19. You know, which one are you going to want to do? Which one's going to pay your bills? You know what I mean? Really? So those are all things you have to think about. It's like, yeah, one of the places I worked at, we sold a hamburger. I, I you know, I'm indifferent on hamburgers, Wh- whatever. It's like there's, the, you know, but again, you go back. It's like, it doesn't matter what it is. Put yourself in your passion in it and it's going to be a good hamburger. So that when this hamburger goes out, it's like, damn, that's a good looking burger. And if you sell... 750 of those hamburgers a month at $20 a piece, you've just paid for your kitchen staff. You've paid for this and you've paid for that. Now you have the ability to do a $45 special or a $35 special or something else because you don't have to buy a lot of it. You're not counting on it because there's three other dishes that are carrying the restaurant. So these are all things that you think about as as you're writing a menu and, you know, it's like, hey, as much as I don't like chicken Caesar salad, you will put it on a menu because it's $12 that you can sell. And anybody that walks into a restaurant is now familiar with that item. You could have four French items on there and they don't know what the heck it is. They see a chicken Caesar salad. They now are something they're familiar with and they'll order that chicken Caesar salad and they will look at the menu to find something else. So all kinds of things to play into when you're writing a menu and running a restaurant. There were things that I had on the menu that's like, yeah, I don't really, I personally don't like. Doesn't mean I'm going to shortcut it. Doesn't mean I'm going to make it janky or whatever. It's like, it has to be done properly. It has to be presented properly because this is something that somebody wants. And when you look at the numbers in a month, okay, I sold 650 chicken Caesar salads. So yes, it's going to stay on the menu and we're going to con- continue to do it right because 650 people a month buy it. You know what I mean? So it's a lot to going into cooking and we're, we'll probably have to do a part two next week. What do you think? 
I agree. Yeah, there's there's a lot more uh, uh, layers to peel back here. I'm really interested. Yeah. So, um, and I and I and I am too because the more I talk about it, they, yeah. the more excited yeah, I, I get. I, I think we barely scratched the surface because in my mind, I still have tons more questions. Yeah. All right. Well, write those questions down, and uh, we'll pick this up next week for sure. Okay. And all uh, right. Have another well, so uh, another episode recap, of. <laughs> Recapping. In recap, um, we're exploring uh, Jeff's um, early days um, into the culinary arts and uh, uh, certainly how he got into it and then why he got into it. And that's, that's really where the layers are happening here. Um, and then certainly uh, me being uh, uneducated in so many levels, uh, I'm, go- I'm uh, uh, going to ask all those questions that every person probably has always wondered but never wanted to ask so i will i will take one for the team and ask away my friend ask away uh jeff i appreciate your sharing and uh uh let's continue this next week it's always a pleasure enjoy the studio time with you and, and chatting and uh look forward to peeling back more layers next week and hey look right there you can see the weekend from here everybody have a good weekend thanks for listening see ya bye bye